Thank you for taking the time to listen to the sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this, you are challenged by the Word of God, you are built up in love, and that you are drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you, this is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be present in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. We are starting a new series today called A Beautiful Narrative, Luke's detailed account of the identity, life, and ministry of Jesus. So we are going to be in Luke. We're going to be in this series from now until the end of December. Then we're going to take a break, and then we're going to pick it back up in May. And so because we're going to be in this for a little while, it's good to have just a little bit of a review, an overview of the Gospel of Luke. And so here's an overview for you. So the Gospel of Luke, uh, it's a two-part work. So it's part one of a two-part work. So Acts is actually volume two. And so this is a two-part work. It's written to a person named Theophilus. Nobody really knows who this person is, but they believe he was somebody sort of high up in the government of some sort. Luke's gospel highlights the beauty of racial diversity in God's plan of salvation. Luke shows most clearly than any other gospel how Jesus lived in a world that does not understand God. Here are some major themes in Luke. As you read through this, and I would encourage you to actually try to just read through the book of Luke in one sitting. It's really, it's really good. So you'll see some themes going on. There's the theme of God's redemptive plan. And so just the plan of God that is being worked out for us. And then you'll see a theme of Jesus as our Savior, Messiah, and Lord. There's the theme of the Holy Spirit. Luke talks about the Holy Spirit probably more than anyone else and just his work and ministry in our lives. And then there's this theme of prayer. They, they call Luke the theologian of prayer. He's constantly talking about prayer and its importance for us. And then Luke highlights more than anybody else the marginalized. So Luke talks a lot about the poor and how we are to care for the poor and the way Jesus ministered to them. He also highlights the women more than anyone else and how they are marginalized and how they need to be included in the church and how how important they were to the ministry of Jesus. And then there's this last one, the promise and fulfillment. This theme of promise fulfillment, that what God said in the Old Testament is being fulfilled in the New Testament, and this theme is most clear in our passage today. This idea that God keeps his word. See, God expects us as his church to take him at his word. He expects us to trust what he says to us. And this text is going to make it clear that we can trust God and that we should trust God at all times. See, Luke wants us to think rightly about the promises of God. So chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word 
have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed these things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke here gives us four things. Four things he tells us about how his gospel came together before he tells us why he wrote it. First, he says that he investigated it. So he looked into the details of it. Then he says, I started from the beginning. That's why we're going to see in our passage here the, the birth of John. He starts right at the beginning. And then he says, I checked everything. That's why the sermon title is Luke's detailed account. Luke goes into all of the details that he can find. Then he says, I worked carefully. See, Luke here is a good historian. He's a good journalist, if you could say it that way. And he put in the work. He put in the work under the direction of the Holy Spirit so that what we have in front of us, we can trust. That's what he wants. He wants us to be in a spot where we we are fully trusting what we're reading about Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 4 he says, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He wants Theophilus to be sure. He says certainty. Now think about this. There's not a lot of things that we think about where we're like, I'm I'm certain on that. Like we see see Kanye, right? And it looks true. But when we see him talk, there's a part of us that's like, is it true? We feel like Yeezy's on the team, but we don't know. We all, there's lots of things in our life that we think, we, we just, we struggle with certainty. Luke is saying here, when you read the gospel, when you read his work, it is certain you can trust what is being said here. Look at verse 5. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So Luke here gives us the political context that this is all going on, and he says it's in the days of King Herod. Now, you got to understand, Herod was a tyrant. He, he represents Roman oppression to the people of Israel. He controlled the temple. He controlled the priesthood, all for his own political purposes. And it's during these troubled times that we meet Elizabeth and Zechariah. Luke tells us that they're from the priestly line of Aaron, and he also tells us that they're dealing with disappointment. It's there in verse 7. It says, both had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. In that verse, there is all kinds of pain, years of pain wrapped up in that one small statement. Here's point number one today. Suffering will happen. Guard your thoughts. 
Suffering will happen. Guard your thoughts. This would have been hard for this couple. They would have had to endure prying questions. After years and years of no child, they would have had to deal with the, Elizabeth, is something wrong with you? They would have had to deal with insensitive remarks. They would have had to deal with the struggle of doubting God's goodness. Is God good to us? As we're going through this. And in that culture, they would have, they would have had to deal with the, the reality that some people actually thought they were being punished by God. Kent Hughes says, In any culture, infertility is an aching disappointment. And for some, an almost unbearable stress. But the burden cannot be compared to that borne by a childless woman in ancient Hebrew culture because barrenness was considered a disgrace, even a punishment. And so you hear that and you're like, why would they think it's a punishment? Why would they, why would they think that? Well, Deuteronomy says this. Deuteronomy 28. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God... Or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today. Then, curse shall be the fruit of your womb. The people would have thought they were experiencing this. Because in that culture, if something bad was going on in your life, people were like, well, you've probably sinned somehow. You see this when Job's friends come and talk to him, right? What do they say? You probably did something. One of his friends, who's a terrible friend, by the way, says, you probably deserve worse. You're like, are you my boy? Like, what's happening right now? They, they thought this is, you are probably being punished by God. But here's the thing, they're not being punished. You're like, how do you know? Because of what Luke says. He says they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all his Commandments. See, they were not perfect people, but they did all that they could to make sure their lives were conformed to the will of God on an ethical and a spiritual level. And this verse here is actually meant to help us. Luke telling us they were blameless is actually meant to help us because we go wrong in our thinking when suffering happens. When suffering happens in our life, we often, we drift to this idea, maybe God's punishing me. Maybe I've done something wrong and I, I, may, I just, I try to spot it. Maybe he's getting back at me for some old sin. See, sometimes our suffering has nothing to do with our sin. We suffer in this life sometimes because we're simply doing what's right. A wife that's faithfully trying to live for Jesus Christ and tell her children about Jesus suffers because her coward husband attacks her for her faith. Sometimes we suffer for doing the right things. Sometimes we suffer because of the sins of others. People do things. And the ripple effect of their action, we experience that for years and years and years, has nothing to do with us and everything to do with their sin. Sometimes we suffer because we simply live in a world that is broken. So often, that's, what, that's, that's the main one. The world is broken. 
See, when suffering happens, we have to be careful in our thinking so that we don't draw wrong conclusions. God does not punish his children. He works in them to mature them, to make them like Jesus Christ. Elizabeth battled infertility. And I want to say to those who may be battling that or may battle that in the future, that infertility is not your identity. And I say that as someone who, who knows. I will never fully understand that pain, but I believe there's people in our church who do. But you need to understand that infertility is not your identity. Luke says Elizabeth was righteous. That is who she is. And who she is is who we are because the Bible says we are counted righteous in Jesus Christ. That is who we are. And yes... Yes, that pain is real, but the pain will not last forever because in Christ we know we have hope that we will be carried by God through whatever pain we're experiencing until he fixes that his broken world. We are to trust that promise. Prayer. Prayer is supposed to be the mark of a disciple. But we know that we pray sometimes and we wonder, how come God takes so long to answer? You ever feel that? You're praying, you're praying, you're praying. You're like, why won't he answer? Why does he take so long? Why isn't he helping me through this frustration that I'm experiencing? Well, Luke speaks to this question in these next verses. Verse 8. It says, now while they were serving while he, this is Zacharias, serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by law to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him, because the angel said to him, but the angel said to him, sorry, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for you, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. Point number two is this, prayer is heard, trust God's timing. Prayer is heard, trust God's timing. So Zechariah here, he's ministering at the temple, and you've got to understand, this is, this is sort of like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Because there was 18,000 priests. They were in divisions of 24, and they served for two weeks on a rotating basis. And then he's chosen to serve in the most holy place. This would have been a massive privilege to go and do this. Verse 9 says, And according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, when you hear that term, chosen by lot, it sounds like it happened by chance. But it's not by chance. Proverbs 16, says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. See, there's no accidents. There's nothing that happens by chance in your life. Everything that is going on in your life is by God's good providence meant for your good. There's no, there's nothing that happens by chance. 
See, he is right where God wants him. This is where the angel meets him. And when the angel meets him, it says that fear fell upon him. He shook. He's He's like a four-year-old at a haunted house, terrified. But the angel says, calm down. He says, your prayers have been heard. Your prayers have been, this is the first time we realized, in their pain, in their disappointment, they're doing the thing they're supposed to do. They're praying and asking God for help. He says, your prayer has been heard and you're going to have a son. His name will be John. The name John actually means God is gracious. That's what John means. God is gracious. See, we have to trust God's timing for prayer, for our answers to prayer. God may take long to answer, but no matter what, when God answers, he is always being gracious to us, even when he says no. We may have to wait long But whatever the answer is, it's grace from God because God knows what is best for us. Even when he says no to the thing we are longing for, we have to trust his goodness. That's part of good thinking. This is, again, the word of God wants us to think well and rightly. They prayed for a son. But as a priest, he also prayed for the nation. That phrase, the incense going up. Incense in that culture was a, was a sign of prayer, that Zechariah was doing his job. He prayed, and the people also prayed. Look at verse 10. It says, and the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. They were praying for God's rescue. Okay, remember, th- think about the nation. They're, they're under Roman oppression. They're ruled. They're being controlled. And God promised that he would come and rescue them from that experience. And that is starting to happen. It's starting to happen when we see the description of the child. We realize here that God is answering two prayers at once. He's answering the prayer of a desperate couple, but he's also answering the prayer of a desperate nation and people. See, we're not good at multitasking, Right? Don't believe that lie. We're not good at multitasking, but God is. He can do all things. Look at verse 14. It says, and you will have joy and gladness. Sorry, verse 14. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and it will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to children and of disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel says, your your child is going to be great. He's going to bring joy and gladness to many people. And then he tells them about his demeanor. He'll be great, he says, but not in what he accomplishes. John will be great by his obedience to the will of God for his life because he will surrender to what God says for him. And his greatness is going to be measured in three ways. It'll be measured by his disciplined life. He says he must not drink strong drink. There's a discipline that has to be in his life. He will be 
great because you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. This is actually speaking to his prophetic ministry. That, God, that John is going to have this prophetic ministry that's going to get people ready for the coming of Christ, all under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's why he can't get drunk. Because he needs to be controlled by the Spirit and the Spirit alone and nothing else. And then he says he'll call people back to God, like Elijah. Look at verse 16. It says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And they will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to, the, to turn the hearts of fathers to children and the disobedient, uh, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, for us to understand this, we actually need to go backwards. For you to understand verse 16 to 17 properly, we need to go back to Malachi. The last book of the Bible, written 400 years before, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Almost word for word. What you have here is a promise that God makes 400 years before. And then Luke says, this angel stands before Zechariah and he says, the thing that God promised is beginning to happen. God is fulfilling his word. You can trust what he says. 400 years the nation has been waiting, praying, asking God to fulfill his promise. And now it's here. John will be that prophet who will get people ready for the coming of Jesus. And he will start a process that will lead to healing in families. Did you see it? Did you see it in the, in the verse? It says that he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. What you have here is Luke is showing us and reminding us that one of the things, one of our realities because we live in a broken world is that there's brokenness in families. That it's sad, but it's a true reality that sometimes fathers walk away from their children. Sometimes they, they don't take the responsibility that God has put before them and they harm and hurt. And that, that struggle messes with our thinking. I remember watching The Fresh Prince because I kind of grew up on that. And there's an episode where Will Smith is just desperate for his father to love him. And then he says, why don't you want me? And the dad can't even explain it. And that just reminds us of the reality that sometimes in families there's a real brokenness that is there. That parents hurt children. That children hurt parents. But in this, this, this beginning of renewing of everything, there is, there is a restoration that can come to families. See, the gospel reconciles us to God. But the gospel also reconciles us to one another. And so if there's brokenness there, what you are to do is pray for that person who's outside of Christ to come in and trust Jesus Christ so that true and lasting healing can come. And so, yes, there's brokenness, but Luke says there is hope. Hope all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the announcement of John's birth is good news, not just for Zechariah and Elizabeth. It's good news for the nation of Israel, and it's good news for us. His birth 
will initiate a process that moves from John to Jesus, from Jesus to the redemption of the whole earth, where there will be healing, beautiful healing in families. See, he prayed for a son, and he got a prophet. He has this narrow focus in his prayer. And God's like, you want a son? Okay, I'm going to give you one. But I'm going to give you more than you even expect. See, God is doing something much bigger than them. That's what Luke is trying to show us. God is doing something way bigger than Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we got to keep this in mind when we pray. Sometimes when we pray, we have this narrow focus. We're only thinking about ourselves. And we forget that God is doing something much bigger than us. And that God will answer according to his perfect timing. In a way that fits with his plan. Ephesians says this. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. A plan for the, from the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That is what God is doing. That is the big plan. My plan needs to fit into that plan. And sometimes God takes a long time to answer our prayer because he's like, I'm doing something bigger than your prayer. And God will always answer your prayer in light of this plan. That is good thinking. When we think this way, it will alleviate frustration. It will alleviate anger in our life when we remember God is doing something bigger than me. And that the humble thing to do is to submit, to surrender, to come under his good plan. Because even though he may not answer my prayer in the ways that I want, he will, I will always benefit because that plan is a good plan and that plan is going to happen. He's going to fulfill his word and so we trust his timing. But trust isn't easy for us. We go in and out of trust all the time. I was on a flight coming back from Nova Scotia where I went to school. And on this Air Canada flight, this baby went sideways. And I was like, whoa! For real. A couple other people said it too. I wasn't the only one up there where I was nervous. But I was utterly convinced we are not going to make it. I almost said it. Whoa! And it was like that for a while. I mean, I don't, I don't know what was going on. I, when you get on a flight, and we were talking about this on the drive here, you're just, you're trusting people you don't even know. A couple of you were like, I got a flight tomorrow. <laughs> you don't even meet the captain. He just kind of slips in on the side. You're like, I think that was him. But it's so, it's, it's so much trust. And it's not easy for us God knows you, you and I struggle with doubt. And so he gives us these next verses to help us. Again, because God is good. He doesn't want to leave us wondering. He gives us 
this to help us. Look at verse 18. It says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this? How shall I know this? For I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. He's like, hey, you're in front of an angel. It's not like it's Rick from the grocery store. He's like, I stand in the presence of God. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my word which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and they kept making signs to them and, and, uh, and remained mute. And when his time of service ended, he went to his Home. Point number three, our last point. Unbelief is dangerous. Remember its consequences. Unbelief is dangerous. Remember its consequences. The angel says what will happen. He says, you're, he, he walks him through. You're going to have a son. He's going he's to be like this. Here's his role. And then Zechariah doubts. He says, how shall I know this? Another translation makes the, the doubt even more clear. It says, on what basis will I know this? He says, I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to give you this good news. This is a statement of authority in the face of human doubt. God's answer. God answered his prayer, but he stopped believing. Do you notice that? He was praying, but he didn't believe. The thing he was praying for, he got. But he did not believe. And that's because he was looking at it from a human perspective. And his moment of unbelief shows us that spiritual leaders aren't immune to this. He's their priest. He's the one who would have said, called them to trust God. And honestly, full disclosure, I do that all the time to people. I'm like, trust God. And then I walk out and I'm like, I don't trust God. <laughs> it reminds us that spiritual leaders are not immune. And that's why we don't worship spiritual leaders. We pray for them. Because those who are in spiritual leadership need Jesus just as much as everybody else. And the person who's up there fronting like they don't, they're lying. We don't worship them. We pray for them because we struggle with doubt just like anyone else. We look at the word of God and we wonder too, will God keep his promise? And so we don't worship. We, we pray for those in leadership. See, he looked at his old age. He looked at his old wife and he couldn't accept by faith what God could do. His biology was right, but his theology was wrong. His biology is right, but his theology is wrong. And take in the consequences. Verse 20, and behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And when the 
And when the people were waiting for Zechariah, they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. The people are outside. They're like, what's taking so long? Because usually the priest goes in and it's nice and quick. If they were in there long, you're like, something happened. So they're wondering, what's going on? What is taking him so long? He can't even give the customary blessing. So when the priest would come out, they would also, they would also put a, a, a blessing on the people and send them on their way. He can't even do that. He was mute. And if you look over at uh, verse 62, he was also deaf. It says, this is when the birth happens. He says, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. He was mute and deaf. All because he doubted the word of God. Unbelief has real consequences. And we live in a time where unbelief is the norm. Where we are the weird ones for believing. There are even people working to get you not to believe. Do you know that? Unbelief is the norm in our culture. James K. Smith says this. From Richard Dawkins to Steve Pinkner. The priests of enlightenment are prophets of overreach, promising a status more than an adequate explanation. Sometimes you read the stuff these guys write, you're like, that doesn't seem like a good explanation. Promising a status more than an adequate explanation. And we buy in, less because the system works intellectually. We often don't even expend the energy to confirm the evidence, and we suppress the lingering questions. And more because it comes with the, here it is, with the allurement of illumination and sophistication, with the added benefit of throwing off the naivete of simplistic faith, what their knowledge offers is a shortcut to respectability. Unbelief might make people feel sophisticated. It might make you feel grown, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it comes with Real consequences. The Christian who drifts into unbelief may never be, will never be punished for the sin that they choose to go into because all of that has been poured out on Jesus Christ. But you will have to live with the consequences that come from that. The parent who chooses to parent by harsh, rough ways will be forgiven if they repent of that sin, but they will have to live with the consequences of the broken relationship with their children forever. All of it has consequences. And the unbeliever who chooses to stay in that position of unbelief and never come over to trusting Jesus Christ will have to live through the consequences of a life away from God for all eternity being punished for our sin. It has real consequences. See, Luke shows us how Zechariah responds so we would never respond like that. That we would look at what God has said in his word and fully trust it. He doubted, but God kept his word. Look at verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, the Lord has done for me in the days uh, when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. J- 
Just a simple statement of God's faithfulness. She conceived. He said, the word will be fulfilled in its time. And it did. She conceived. God kept his word. No fanfare, just a simple explanation. God is faithful. We can trust what he says to us. And she says, God has taken away my reproach from among the people. Again, reproach refers to this lie. There's this lie that was told in their culture. Which, and the lie was that your worth as a wife and person was based on the amount of children you had. That's the lie. That's the reproach that she lived under. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because we live with that same lie too. This lie that our worth, our significance, comes from what we do and what we have. That is a lie. Our worth and our significance comes from who God says we are, his beloved. That is where our worth and significant lies, that we are children of God. Again, unbelief will tempt you to think that your worth is in something else. If you ever wonder why people are so overworked and so depressed, it's because so many people have bought into this lie. That my significance is in what I can do and what I have. And the Bible's like, no, your significance is in the fact that you are loved by God with an everlasting, unchanging love. That nothing, nothing will change that reality. Elizabeth is grateful, but Notice her understanding is limited. Her understanding is limited because she thinks God is primarily vindicating her. Do you see it? She says what he has done for me. He looked on me to take away my, again, suffering. Messes with our minds. It makes us, it, it localizes us, makes us think only about ourselves. Yes, God took away her reproach. But she was just to start. He lifted the reproach off of her, but she was just the start. See, like her, we had reproach. We had reproach all over us because of our sin. But listen to what Colossians says. It says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless. Remember, she was blameless. That's her identity. Holy and blameless. That's your identity. And what? Above, say it. Let's try it again. Above reproach before him. That is our reality. All because of Jesus Christ. None of it is because of what we have done. All of it is because of the life that he lived for us and the death that he died in our place. Elizabeth's story is our story. At the beginning, she's barren and without hope. Not in a position of honor. And now, at the end, she is restored in a position of honor. You, because you are in Christ, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have, were in a place where only reproach was on you. 
But now in Christ, you're in a place where you are loved, clean, restored, and only honor is coming to you. The Bible says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That is your reality, above reproach. And Jesus Christ will present us to the Father, clean because we are his. Yes. Above reproach. Our disgrace has been swept away by grace. Do you live like that? Do you get up every day and start with, I am in grace? That in Christ I am blameless, that I'm going to be presented above reproach. Our disgrace has been swept away by the grace of Jesus Christ. And one of the clearest reminder of this for us is communion. Communion helps us to think rightly. That when we are trusting in God, when we're trusting in the promises that he has made us in his word, it, it reminds us of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done. Communion reminds us about ourselves that yes, there was a time where we were in sin. Yes, that we were disgraced. But also reminds us that we are now standing in grace. And that there's more grace to come. That there's more grace to come. And so our ushers are going to pass out communion so we can take together. And as they do that, the scriptures say that we are to examine ourselves, examine ourselves and confess, confess any known sin that we see. But not only are we to confess sin, we should thank God for his grace. And so we're gonna do that. But I wanna say, if you're not a Christian, that communion isn't for you. And again, that's not said to be disrespectful, but communion is for those who are standing in grace. They're trusting in Jesus Christ. And so as the trays come, if you're not a Christian, please let them pass. And we'll take together after the song. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit HopeTorontoNorth.com.